Welcome. We're glad you're here this morning. It's fall break. A lot of people out um, over fall break, and so, uh, but we're glad you're here worshiping together uh, with us and our families, and so uh, welcome. Glad to have you. We've been in the midst of our series uh, called To Seek and to Save. Um, of course, it comes straight from the book of Luke. It's what Jesus came to do. Luke uh, tells us in his gospel that God asked him to write, uh, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And we've talked about this numerous times throughout the week, but many of uh, Jesus came, he was called the Son of Man. It's a reference to the Old Testament Messiah that was going to come. And the book of Luke is writing uh, to that fact. Luke is saying, look, this Son of Man that was said thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago would come to deliver and save humanity is here. And it is Jesus. And so Luke, who is a physician, is writing a very detailed, very accurate, very careful account of the life of Jesus. And he's taking eyewitness accounts, he's compiling it, he's putting it all together to give us a clear picture of who Jesus really is and what his purpose was. Luke also writes the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. He writes two of the most foundational documents um, of the church. And so that's what we have, that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks as we go through this. And again, the Son of Man is that term you'll see over, 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 and over again in the book of Luke. It's just obvious that Luke is pounding that home because he uses the term over and over again. And just like your parents, when they say the same thing over and over again, or a professor says the same thing over and over again, it means they want you to get it, right? Same thing. God is no different. The reason that works for parents and professors and people is because God is the one that created it. (laughs) And said, you guys need to be reminded over and over. Um, last week, we looked at the, the idea of how do you read it. This week, we're going to look at this. How much more will he give? How much more will he give? You know, we're in the midst of celebrating. We have communion um, for you today. We had it last week. We'll have it again next week. We try to follow our communion schedule with the biblical calendar, the Old Testament, Right now is Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's been celebrated for thousands of years. God laid out his calendar in the Old Testament and said, I want you to take a time, Rosh Hashanah, to remember that things are new, that that there's a newness, there's a new year. And then there would be the days of awe, of fasting and prayer to get themselves ready for the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they would build these booths and cut a hole in the top, and and it was the idea that now that we have made ourselves new, now that we've committed to to, to follow God, he's going to come meet with us. He's going to come through the hole in the tent that we built as we go out there on the porch and eat as a family, so to speak, and he's going to come and dine with us. He's going to be with us at our table. We're going to eat with him because he wants to be with us, and then it would lead to the day of atonement, which was God will atone for our sins. Now, this is the perfect picture of Jesus, a God that says, I want to bring newness of life. I want to give you a new life, and I'm going to come from heaven to earth to put myself in an earthly tabernacle, a body, a human body, and live a life dedicated and surrendered to God, and then I'm going to die for you to be your atonement. Like like to to be the atonement, you should atone for your sins. You should have to pay for your sins, but I'm going to do that on your behalf. See, that's 
what God was laying out. And that's what Jesus, as he's walking the earth and he's celebrating these festivals, he's, he's lived a perfect Jewish life, an Israelite life. He has obeyed every single Old Testament law at the heart of the law. And Jesus is laying these things out. And now Jesus is at kind of moving towards the end of his ministry. He, he realizes he's heading to Jerusalem to die. He's warned his disciples. We looked at that the last couple of weeks. He's said, I'm, I'm going to go and die. I, I have to. And they don't understand that because they believed that the Messiah who was going to come to seek and to save was going to overthrow the Romans and, and create a new world order and that they were going to be at the top. But they missed the in-between. They missed the fact that someone had to pay for the sins that they deserved. And that God wanted to give his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, John says. How much more does he have to give? How much more will he give? Because the reason we're not destroyed right now is because every day God keeps giving a chance for humanity, you and I, to repent. You and I to have another day to tell about him, another day to go to him, another day, until one day he comes back and he makes all things new. There's a new Rosh Hashanah, a new blowing of the trumpet, a new tabernacle where he's going to come and we're going to live on the earth forever with him, remembering that he has atoned for all of eternity for everything. It's the same story over and over and over again. Last week, we looked at this idea that Jesus looked to and he said, however, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Remember, he sent out the disciples and gave them power over spirits and to heal. And as he sent them out, he said, look, don't rejoice. Don't be so excited that like miracles and special things are happening. But rejoice that your names are written in the book or written in heaven. Other passages say in the book of life, it's the idea that don't rejoice that God's given you like special powers, like Superman. That's not what you should be excited about. You should be excited about the fact that you have a confidence to know that God has put your name in heaven, that you're his child, that he wants to know you and love you. That's what should like fire us up every day. Not look at everything I've done. Then he goes on and he says, what is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, your neighbor is yourself. This is when a religious leader was asking, having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus said, what is written in the law? And he asked him, how, how do you read it? And we talked about last week that we better be careful how we read the word of God, how we approach God, how we understand him, because we're easily deceived. Now this week, how much more Will he give? You see, during Yom Kippur, the Feast of Tabernacles and Rosh Hashanah, during, during this time, the, the Jews would read from a book, a special prayer book. Okay, they would read from this special prayer book. They still do today. And they would use this special prayer book to say prayers that were in line with what God was wanting to happen in the new year in terms of tabernacling. And they would be prayers from scripture, mainly from the Psalms. But they would read these prayer books. They still do it today. And they would pray to their God, reminding them of how much God had given them and how much they could trust God for what he promised he will give someday. And they still do it. And that's where we find the next set of passages. We find the disciples asking Jesus a curious question. And so here it is. 
He was praying in a certain place. I love that. Luke doesn't even tell us where. Have you ever questioned, like, I wonder where that place was. Like, what, certain place. Well, you could have told us what place. But no, he says he was praying in a certain place. So Jesus had chosen to go and pray. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now think about this for a minute before we go on. Jesus had not taught his disciples how to pray. Yet. Some would consider that a failure in ministry. You got these guys with you all this time and you've never taken the time to, to teach them how to pray. Or at least they felt like Jesus had never really taught them to pray. But had he not taught them? Oh, he had taught them. He had modeled it over and over again. That's why they're asking the question is because when they heard Jesus' prayer, even though they were good Jewish guys who knew how to read the prayers from the books on all their holidays, they knew the Old Testament, they, they knew how prayer worked in church or in synagogue or in the temple. They knew it. When they heard Jesus pray, they went, yeah, we don't know how to pray. <laughs> we, we, can't, we don't pray like that. Like, you, you need to teach us because it's not the same. And what we've been taught how to do, it isn't the same way you're praying. See, they recognized that there was a brokenness in their prayer life. When they saw the example of Jesus and heard how he prayed. And so they're looking and they're saying, now, John taught his disciples, now, could you teach us? And then he goes on and he says, he said to them, whenever you pray, now, now look at this. He doesn't say, well, prayer is just talking with God. Say whatever you want. He's okay. See, I hear Christians, I've said that before. I hear Christians say that all the time. Well, prayer is just talking with God. Jesus could have said that here. He could have said, well, prayer is just talking with God. Just, just, he's your buddy. Just talk with him. He doesn't say that. He lays it out specifically what to do very carefully. He says, here's the deal. Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us and do not bring us into temptation. See, Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's simple. You just... God so wants to be with you, you can say whatever you want. No, he says, look, and this is radical. The first thing he says would have turned their world upside down. He says, you refer to God as father, as Abba, as daddy. That would have been foreign to them as Jews. They were taught that God was far off. He was distant. He was holy. You couldn't approach him. He was, oh, and Jesus is like, no, call him Father. That's, that's an intimate term. Now, I know some of you might have had broken relationships with your father. And when you read the word father, there's not a connection there. But that's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible wants you to understand that he is the man. He is the, the father that you always wanted, always hoped for, can trust always. And so he says, father. And they would have said, oh, wow, that's intimate. That's then, look what he says. He doesn't say, and then you say, oh, and daddy, I want this. And I, no, he says, next thing, your name be honored as holy. He says, now don't get too comfortable with daddy. Because <laughs> daddy's holy. His name is holy. I'm not giving you a new name and you can just refer to my dad, my big guy in the sky. No, he is holy. 
His name is special. He is righteous. And so you have to recognize that the father you're approaching is a holy father. He is righteous, perfect, good, just, loving, all those attributes. And so you need to recognize that while I tell you it's intimate and he's daddy, he is scary, holy. And so when you come to him, you come to him with a sense of of reverence, respect, and awe. Not that you can't talk to him, but recognizing that when you go to him, and I've told you you can speak to him in loving terms, that you do it with a sense of awe, of wonder. You see, that's how it should be with authority in our lives. There should be this sense of, when we we approach authority, there's this sense of, I can speak to authority, I can talk to authority, but but in the essence, they're in charge, and and it's not my job to overthrow them, it's my job to, to communicate and make clear. And then he says, look at this, whenever you pray, also pray your kingdom come. I love this. He says, and then, so after you've gotten intimate, daddy, after you've then said with the prayer, I recognize you're everything, you're, you're in charge, you're the dad, you, you, set, you call the shots. He says, the next thing you need to do is be sure that you're not coming to him asking for your kingdom. And isn't that what we do? Oh yeah, dad, I just came and uh, um, I just wanted to, you know, this is what I want. He's like, no, 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 no. You need to be sure that you're coming. And when you come, that you're about his kingdom. That you say, you know, dad, I know your dad. And and I just want you to know that you're holy. And I'm accepting the fact that it's your kingdom, not mine. And so now I'm getting ready to make a request. Do you see the posture of the heart when you go through that process? The posture of the heart is one of, of just humbleness, of respect, of of relationship. It's it's a beautiful picture. And so often it's like, well, God, you know, prayer is just talking with God and we immediately say, God, I want this and I want that and you should do this and you should do that. You didn't go through the process Jesus laid out twice when he was asked how to pray. This is the process of what you're supposed to go through. Now, does that mean I have to spend 20 minutes or a half an hour telling him he's father and he's whole? Not necessarily, But there should be a a recognition of it. And the disciples knew they didn't get it. They were raised in church. They were raised in God's family as believers. And they weren't getting this. And then he says, look at this. Once you recognize that it's all about God's kingdom, it's interesting how your requests change. Because they don't say, and give me a big field so I can make lots of money and have a big house. (laughs) With the wheat you provide. He says, Just give me the daily bread I need today. That's enough. If you want to give me more, that'd be great. But but just give me the bread I need for today so that I could tell people you're my father, I could honor your name as holy so I can build your kingdom. I I just need bread today. See, this is like the opposite of how we pray, isn't it? This is not how we teach people to pray. And it's sad because this is exactly what the disciples were asking. Because they recognized that prayer was broken in their culture. And then they go on and look at the next thing. It's just provide me what I need today. And then he says, and forgive us our sins. Isn't it interesting? It's not forgive me my sins. 
You're a part of a community, a body of believers, a world that's desperate to be sought and saved. It's not a personal me and my sin. It's a, Lord, I'm with the rest of them. We're desperate. We we need you. It's not self-focused. It's all of us need to cry out for the repentance. I need to cry out for others. Lord, we need forgiveness. Because if I recognize your kingdom and I recognize that you're going to give me enough to survive another day, then I have a purpose to tell other people about you and extend your grace and forgiveness to others because you're a compassionate and loving God. And then it goes on and it says, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. Again, plural, ourselves, us. Like like we want to extend forgiveness to others. We, We want them to see who you are. And yeah, they're in debt to us. But we want to offer them, as the Old Testament talks about, the year of Jubilee, the freedom that's found from being set free from the bondage of sin. And then he says, and do not bring us into temptation. In other words, we're really going to need your help in this because I'm going to be tempted to not pray this way, to not see the world this way, to not speak to you this way, to not do things your way, but to do them my way. Really, Jesus is, is really approaching and he's, And he's really answering. He's looking at the disciples. He goes, let me teach you how to tabernacle with your father. Let let me teach you how to be with your father. Let me teach you that when I go to pray to my dad, when I go to pray to the Trinity, when, when I go to talk to him and I tabernacle with him in his presence, let me just let you into how I pray. Because this is how Jesus prayed. Which is amazing when you think about it. Because if anybody could have gone to the Father and said, Dad, I want this, and I want that, and we agreed on this, and this is what your word says, and you better do this, it was Jesus. <laughs> he could have made every demand. And he says, no, that's not how I approach the Father. That's not how I do it. Now, should we be afraid to give our requests to God? No, we're supposed to present our requests to God. He wants us to present our requests, but he wants us to do it from the right heart. Because if we don't have the right heart, you know what ends up happening? We get bitter. And angry, because God, you're not coming through, and you're not doing, and you said, and, and all of a sudden, it's not a relationship anymore, it's a business contract. It goes on, and it's interesting about lead us not in temptation. James says this, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. So it's not that God is leading people into temptation, it's the idea that we're already being led every day to be tempted. Like every day you are tempted. Constantly. You're tempted right now, probably. Tempted to think about something else, tempted to whatever it is. Thoughts running through your head, temptations. He says, don't say you're tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Where, listen, our evil desires can often show up in our prayer life. I just be blunt. Sometimes when I go to God and I'm praying, I'm praying what I want. And I'll tell you something. Now, is God big enough to handle that? Sure. And he's big enough to put me in my place pretty quick. Just like a good dad would do. Excuse me, son? <laughs> Who are you coming to demand that we have chicken tonight instead of, you know, pasta? Really? No. Uh-uh. You have pasta or you don't eat. <laughs> Love you. Like, it's the same thing. And then it says, look. 
James 4 says, therefore submit to God, which is your father, I submit to you, your kingdom come. Resist the devil and he'll flee. See, the process of resistance starts with a relationship, father. It starts with recognizing God is holy and I don't want what my dad doesn't want. And and then when someone comes along and tempts you, you're like, no, that's not what my dad said. That's not what we do in the family. No, I don't want that. I know you're tempting me. And then it goes on. 1 Corinthians says, no temptation has overtaken you except that what is common to humanity. See, we like to have excuses for our temptation. Oh, you just don't know how bad it is, how much I'm tempted, how hard it is for me. Listen, there is nothing new under the sun. There is no like bigger temptation for you than there is for someone else. We are all tempted and we all have to go through the same process of battling it with a community of people helping us. And the second that we think we're special because our temptation is so much bigger, God's put so much more on us, we're in a dangerous spot to be taken advantage of. And he goes on and he says, God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, what you allow him to do in you. It's not like he won't, he won't allow you to be tempted. He said, no, as much as I give you, right? How much will he give? As much as I give you, which is my Holy Spirit in a relationship with you, you have all of my resources to avoid temptation. You have my word that's been compiled and miraculously passed down and it's accurate. You have a relationship with believers called the church. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart. You have everything you need to go against this temptation. But with the temptation, it will provide a way of escape so that you are not, so that you are able to bear it. And not only does he give us all that, but often in the midst of temptation, God will give us an out. He'll lead us to do something else, like go do this or do that or quit thinking. He'll give us a way out and then we still go, no, and choose the garbage. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is saying, this is how you pray. This is how you go to the Father. Then he follows this up. This is what Jesus said to them. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight. So picture the scene, right? So, so this is midnight. Now back then, that'd be, that's really late back then. That'd be like two in the morning for us today, maybe three in the morning, right? Midnight back then, nope, nothing was happening. Here at midnight, you're st- Bloomington's still happening. Like you can go downtown, man, it's, pa- it's party central, okay? Here at midnight, it was shutting down. So you, midnight, and says to him, friend, Lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. In other words, this guy wasn't irresponsible. He didn't know his friend was coming most likely. His friend showed up and he wanted to show him hospitality. He's like, I don't have time to cook bread. I may not even have, I wonder if my friend will help me because I want to take care of this friend. Again, this wasn't, I want three loaves for my family. I didn't work. I didn't provide it. I didn't do anything. Give me three loaves for me. No, he's like, I've got a friend and I want to take care of him. His request isn't selfish. His request is focused on others. And it says, then he will answer from the inside and say, don't bother me. (laughs) Of course you do. It's two in the morning. Who is at the door? Like, stop by. And then it goes on. It says, the door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. Go away. I'm tired. Then it says, I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. His persistence 
to want to give to others, his friend, not his persistence to get what he wants for himself. See, this is the amazing thing about God is that God's like, I want to help you help others. I want to resource you so that you can be a a witness. You can be a blessing to others. But so often we're sitting back and going, I can't do that until you give me stuff for me. Then when I got stuff for me, then I'll get for others. And God's like, no. And he said, look, if you're persistent about loving other people, I'll come through. But I might test you. I might make you wait a little bit to see if your request, are you ready for this, is really for your friend and you care about them or if it's just for you and you really don't care about your friend. You knock one time, dude, I don't have any bread. Could you give me some bread? And No, okay. And then you go back to your friend like, sorry, I can't feed you. Like my neighbor won't give me any bread. You know, just go to bed, bye. That's not persistence. That's not love. That's not care. That's lazy. And God's like, I'm looking for people that'll really care, that won't be lazy, that'll really like pursue me on behalf of other people. Because that's what Jesus does. He, he leaves heaven itself, puts himself in a human body. He's not lazy. He works construction 18 years. He then goes into ministry and then he dies for us. He didn't need any of it, folks. He was God. He didn't need to die. He didn't need any of it. He did it because he loves us. That's what scripture says. That from the foundation of the world, Christ died for us. He was ready to do what was necessary for us. Jesus is this friend knocking at the Father's door on your and my behalf. He already has everything. He's the Son of God. He needs nothing. He's not asking for anything for himself. He's so consumed with us, with people. Goes on and he says this. So I say to you, keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open. You listen, this verse is twisted so much because people love to run to this verse without the context of what I just gave you. Without the context of a heavenly father who's holy. It's about his kingdom. I only need bread today. I want to be about other people. We run to this and say, well, I'm going to keep asking for that car. I'm going to keep asking for that house. I'm going to get what I want. Listen, is it wrong to ask God for those things? No, but what's your purpose in wanting them? Really to serve other people so that you can really serve others? And, or is it just because you want them? Because you see it'll be easier and you like it. That's what he's going. He said, for everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds and to the one who knocks the door will be opened what father among you if his son asks for a fish will give him a snake instead of a fish God isn't out to like get you but it doesn't say what son among you if he asks for a fishing fleet and and a great you know how everything he wants is no he says a fish He came to you asking for a fish, one fish, not asking for all the fishes in the ocean. And then he says, or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. You you act as if God doesn't want to give you anything, and if he does want to give you something, it's something bad. No. The question is, what's our heart in giving and receiving? If you then, who are evil, this would have been very offensive. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's speaking. He's looking at them and he says, now, if you who are evil, evil, 
You mean Peter's evil, right? Like, I'm John. I'm good. Like, James, he's evil. Like, you see what he did last week? He, I mean, Judas, we know he's stealing. We haven't told you. But he's stealing from the treasury. Like, he's evil. No. See, there's a recognition that I'm nothing. I, I'm, just, I'm an evil sinner without God restoring me. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And again, this gets misinterpreted. Why? Because we live in a culture that gives children everything they want. And it's not good for them. It's not. It's not good for kids to get everything they want. It's actually very bad for them. Because it doesn't teach them to trust to wait. It doesn't teach them to, to work for something. It doesn't teach them to, to trust God for things. But, but I, you're, the, you're the vending machine they come to. You see, he looks and he says, good gifts. What's the definition of a good gift? It's a gift that leads to good outcomes. It changes the heart. That's a good gift. Then he says, Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He says, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? How much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, tune in. If you're a Jew in this time period, you don't want the Holy Spirit. You don't want it anywhere near you. Because the Holy Spirit resides where? In the Holy of Holies in the temple. And a priest would go in during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, with a rope tied to his ankle and bells on the end of his robe to make a sacrifice on behalf of your forgiveness, the, the people's forgiveness. He would go in and obey this prayer, Father, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing. Like, that's what he would do. And they would yank on the rope to make sure he was still alive because if he went in there and he did something sinful or he had sin in his life, he just dropped dead when he walked in. And they would pull his lifeless body out and send the next guy up in. <laughs> and you would keep doing that until God accepted the sacrifice. You don't want the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit comes in, you know it means I have to be holy. I have to allow myself to be cleansed and be made holy. I didn't ask for the Holy Spirit. I just asked for a nice house, a new car. The Holy Spirit's way too much for me. I don't want that. This would have, when he said that, they would have went, I don't want, no. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's scary. Like in the Bible, when the Holy Spirit came, like wars broke out. And like, it's, people died and the ground swallowed people up. Like I don't, I don't know that I want the Father to give the Holy Spirit to me. I don't know how that's possible because I'm such an evil sinner. And see, Jesus was saying, no, that's actually what God wants to give you. That was the plan of the Garden of Eden, was for God to tabernacle with you, to be present with you for all of eternity, for the Holy Spirit to be dwelled in you and to us to have a relationship together. And you said, no thanks, I don't want that. I'll follow my way, not the Holy Spirit's way. Thank you very much. And Jesus made the atonement, the sacrifice, to allow us to be filled with the Spirit again. 
You see, God's not giving us something scary and awful. He's giving us something beautiful that will change us. It will change how we view everything. But we've got to let the Holy Spirit do its work. Now he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? So in other words, he's saying, look, Satan... He doesn't cast out himself. That's not how it works. And he goes on and he says this. For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is is it your sons drive them out by? In other words, they had ways that they did supernatural stuff and prayer. and, and, And they had people that would do demonic exorcism in people's lives. For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Man, Jesus draws a line in the sand and he says, I am either the son of man, I am either the person, the God of the universe, I am the one or I'm not. You have to make a decision. He draws a line and looks at them and says, you got to make a decision. And those who have been casting out demons, he's probably, the sons there probably refers to the disciples and the 70 he sent out who were casting out demons in Jesus' name. And he says, they're going to be your judges when the day comes. And he looks and he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters people. They, you scatter. See, if Jesus is stronger than Satan, then he overthrows him. And the question is, whose side will you be on? Will you be with Jesus or will you be against him? Will we work for Jesus or will we work against him? Because Jesus keeps coming in and overthrowing the demons, proving that he's stronger than they are. He's not casting them out because he believes that, 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 because he's Satan himself. But Jesus is saying, either I'm Satan or I'm God, you have to choose. I'm either a crazy Satanist person or I am God in the flesh. Make a choice. That's a bold, bold statement. Then he says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, it roams through the waterless places looking for rest and not finding it and then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from and returning it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that man's last condition is worse than the first. This is a person being delivered, you ready for this? Being delivered from a demon getting rid of a demon, but not getting filled up with God's power to fight back. And that's what the Pharisees had been doing. They had been getting people delivered from demons, but they weren't empowering them back with God's word, with his presence. And so as a result, they would end up worse. Because here's the deal. 
demons have a great desire to inhabit people's bodies. Let me say that again. I know it's weird because we live in like modern times and there's science and doctors and, you know, are you just a demon under every stone? No. Demons have a very strong, one of their greatest missions is to try to possess, to take over people. You want to know why a demon's greatest mission is that? Because God's greatest mission is to fill people. And if you want to fight God, you get them filled up before God does. See, it's always been about us. It's always been about God wanting to have a relationship, filling us up so we could speak with him, so we could tabernacle with him, so we could love him. And Satan's like, I don't want that. And so when he sees a guy that gets cleaned up, he doesn't go away and go, wow, wow, that didn't really work out. No, he's going to come back even stronger to try to fight to keep that soul from being filled with God. This is why addiction programs, can, while they're great, can be very dangerous. Because when someone goes into addiction program and it's not about Jesus and it's not being filled up with the Holy Spirit and they get their higher power and, they, and then they go back out, Satan can bring in a bunch of other demons with them if they're not filled up with the God of the universe. And their first condition, even though they might not be an addict of the drug they went into the addiction for, now they're worse off than they were because there's all kinds of other mess in their life. Because it's not about this world, it's about our heart before Abba, Father, Daddy. He goes and he says, you've got to know that God wants to tabernacle with you. He wants to make things new. He wants to fill you up through a relationship with him. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, the womb that bore you and the one you nursed, you are blessed. This is kind of a strange statement. <laughs> like just, you're walking around, there's these big crowds and this woman just yells. And he said, even more those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. See, that would have been easy to take that blessing and say, oh, she's right, I'm awesome. She's, she's dead on. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm the thing, I'm it. And Jesus says, hold on. You want to celebrate me? Let me put this back on you, man. Do you obey God? Do you try to seek his blessing and what he says is true in his word? As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, look at this. So this woman tries to flatter. Jesus pushes back against it. And then as the crowds are increasing, this is Jesus' message. This is not the way to build your brand, okay? This, this, is, this, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You see, hearts set on miracles and signs don't embrace the greatness of God's word. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you are someone who's driven by feeling, and, and, and I, I just, what, what I feel, like that sign, that peace that I have, and it, that's a sign that you're getting ready probably to reap judgment on yourself if you're not careful. Your feelings can deceive you. Are feelings real? Absolutely. Are they to be ignored? Absolutely not. They are not to be ignored. 
They are be, they're, they're to be compared with God's word. Jesus said, in the Bible it says, in your anger do not sin. It doesn't say you won't get angry. Jesus got angry all the time, right? Like he's kind of angry here. He's gonna get angry in a minute. Like he gets upset at times. He doesn't sin. He speaks the truth when he gets upset. He looks and he just says, and here's the truth. He doesn't sin. It's not wrong to have anger as an emotion. It's not wrong to have sadness as an emotion. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. He doesn't say, don't mourn. Emotions aren't bad, but he's looking and he's saying, if you want to know that you live in an evil generation, look at how they respond to my word. And folks, we live there now. We live in an evil generation that when, they, when you look at the word of God, they want nothing to do with it. It needs to be reinterpreted. It needs to be made something different than it used to be. We've got to clean God up and make him look better because he looks so mean in the Old Testament. We've got pastors running around saying we just need to ignore the Old Testament and throw it out and just move on. We have turned this upside down and Jesus says, look, the only sign you're going to get, in other words, I'm not doing all these signs to try to convince you to love my father. My father is fully lovely at the way he is. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And then he explains He says, for just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, remember, who were the Ninevites? They weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because he hated the Ninevites. The Jews hated the Assyrians, hated them. And he knew that if he went there and God told him to go, that God would save them. And he didn't want them saved. And he'd rather throw himself over a boat, get swallowed by a fish and drowned than tell them about the loving God that would forgive them. That's how furious and angry Jonah was with God for telling him he had to go share with those wicked Ninevites. And at the end of the book of Jonah, you know how it ends? With Jonah mad that God saved them. He's still mad God saved him. He never got over it. He kept, he just, I knew you'd do this. That's why I didn't want to come here. He goes on and he says, also, the son of man will be this to this generation. Now this is loaded. He's saying the son of man, the son of man is going to die, give his life to save the people on the boat. Remember, there were people in a storm. Those sailors were in a storm in the book of Jonah and they were like, we don't know what we're gonna do. And Jonah said, it's my fault, throw me overboard. So they threw him overboard and they were saved. But you gotta be in the boat. But then he says, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna preach to people that, that aren't Jews, to the Gentiles. This would have been so offensive to them. And then I'm gonna come back to life because Jonah died and came back to life. And it goes on, it says this, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Look, these people believe there was nothing greater than Solomon because he built the greatest temple ever and they wanted that temple back. Herod built them a temple that was smaller and not as glamorous as Solomon's temple, but they always wanted to get back to the Solomon days. You know, the days when he had 700 wives and 300 concubines? Those are good days. Like, he he lays this out and he says, something greater is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it 
because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. When he says the queen of the south, you can read this story in 1 Kings 10. In 1 Kings 10 is when the queen of the south comes to Solomon. And when she saw the great works that God did for and through Solomon, she praised the God of Israel. She didn't say, show me more miracles and maybe I'll believe in your God. She surrendered. That's what he's referring to. He's like, these people in the Old Testament who weren't even Israelites, who, who saw God and surrendered, this generation won't surrender. I'm present. I'm Jesus. I'm present with you, he says, and you can't surrender to me. You can't believe that I've come to tabernacle with you. You can't believe it. And you're supposed to be the ones that know this, embrace it, and let the whole world know. And instead, you're pushing against it. And he says, something greater than Jonah is here. And he's referring to himself. He said, no one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand. So that those who come near may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of it in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. You see, when you're in darkness, there's, either, there's one of two reasons why. Because there's no light source at all, it's dark, or because the darkness is within you and you refuse to look at the light. That's what God is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying. God's not dark. You're dark. You're choosing darkness instead of the light I offer. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. This is a religious leader, an expert. So he went in and he reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Jesus didn't wash his hands with soap and water before he came to eat. That's not what this means. <laughs> Jesus probably washed, okay? He didn't do the ritual washing. You see, the ritual washing, the, the, the Pharisees had decided how you had to wash perfectly to be clean. And so you'd have this special water that was in a special basin. You couldn't use normal water to wash with. And then you could only use it like a cup and a half of the special water. And you had to pour it just right on your hands so that it went down your hands and dripped off each one of your fingers in a certain way. And then when you did that, you had to shake them a certain way and then wipe them in a certain way. And if you were inspected and you passed the washing, oh, then you could eat. And he looks at Jesus and he says, you just came in and you're like, you, you you didn't really you didn't do the ritual washing. Like, I'm a Pharisee. I do the ritual washing in my house. You need to do the ritual washing. Jesus is like, no, God didn't say to do that. You guys made that up, which is what he gets ready to say. But the Lord said to him, now you, Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. You look great on the outside. You do your little washing and your hands look clean, but the blood inside of you, isn't pure. He looks and he says, fools. That is a very offensive term. <laughs> Super offensive in this culture to say that, to call all the Pharisees fools. Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor and then everything is clean to you. Jesus says, I can tell if you're really clean inside by how you treat the least of these. 
He tells that in other places in Scripture. Jesus says, how you treat the least of these. He goes, and the way you treat the least of these is you expect them to come into your house and wash perfectly before you'll give them a morsel of food. Are you kidding me? The poor are just hungry. Give them food. He goes on and he says, but woe to you, Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. He says, you make sure that when you do your garden that you have everything out and you count out the seeds and make sure if there's 100 seeds, you give 10 seeds to God. Just to prove your point. Just to prove how righteous you are. I'm better than you. He goes, no. You do that and you bypass the love and justice God has. God said the real mark of a believer is the love they have for others. It's not being good at all the outward things. Goes on and he says this. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. In other words, Jesus says it's not wrong to be sure that you're honoring God, to count out ten seeds. He said the problem is you stop there and say that's good. No, I want your whole life. I want all of you. He says, woe to you Pharisees. You love the front seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. You want to be known by everyone. Woe to you. You're like unmarked graves. When you would walk over an unmarked grave and you were a Pharisee, it meant you were unclean. Because anytime you got near a dead body, you were said to be unclean. And so he's like, you guys are marking, you're walking over the undead all the time thinking you're clean and you're not. You're a mess. And then he says, one of the experts in the law answered, teacher, look at this. When you say these things, you insult us too. Yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> like, that, I know what I'm doing. I'm insulting you on purpose. <laughs> yes, I'm insulting you. I'm glad you get it. I'm glad you understand. Now what are you going to do knowing that I've insulted you? And then he says, woe to you, experts in the law, you load people with burdens that are hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. God's desire is to give. He's a giver and you're trying to just be stingy and keep people from receiving anything because of some silly rule you made up. He goes on and he says, you load people up. You see, the lawyer would have done better to keep quiet. But since he drew attention to himself, Jesus said, okay, let's go there. And remember that lawyers in this culture, their job was to be sure that everyone kept the Mosaic law. That was their job, to walk around and be like, you're not doing right, you're not doing right, you're not doing right. That's what they were. They were like the Mosaic law police force. And so he's looking at them and saying, you walk around and point all this stuff out, but you don't do any of it. You need to deal with your heart first. He goes on, he says, whoa. To you. He's not done yet. Like he's insulted him. They say, hey, you've insulted us. You should stop. And he's like, oh no, I'm not done yet. Woe to you. You build monuments to the prophets and your fathers killed them. <laughs> you build monuments to Jeremiah and it was your fathers who killed Jeremiah. Like you are that bold and arrogant to be like, oh, we love Jeremiah. Really? You killed him. Have you repented of that? Well, no, it wasn't us. That was, that was a mistake. It's just then he goes on, he says, therefore your witnesses that you approve the deeds your fathers of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments. Because of this, the wisdom of God 
said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them will kill and persecute so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of blood. And then he goes on. He says, for the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. Jesus is saying, you need to repent. If you haven't repented like John was doing when he said, repent and be baptized, I'm telling you to repent. I'm telling you that God wants to give to you, but the access to that is to repent, is to go back and say, I admit I'm evil, I'm a sinner, I need you, I'm hopeless without you, repent. He said, but you're not gonna do that. We know that because look what happens next. Woe to you experts, he's still not done. You have taken away the key of knowledge You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered those who were going in. When he left there, the scribes and Pharisees began to expose him or oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. See, this is what we do. We go to God. Remember, this started with prayer. This started with going to God. We go to God and then we run around and look for scriptures to back up what we want. We're no different than the Pharisees. We like lie in wait looking for a scripture so we can throw it back at God. Well, you said this and and you said that. That's what the Pharisees do if they're not careful. Is it wrong to remind God of his word? Absolutely not. Moses reminded God of his word. God wanted to destroy his people and Moses said, wait. If you do that, they're not your covenant people. You, how are people going to know? They need to see your love and compassion. And God said, you're right. Thanks for recognizing what I wanted you to see. <laughs> he goes on and he says, they're lying. See, we get te- in our culture today, we get teachers to tickle our ears. 1 Timothy 4.3 says, for the time will come where they'll not tolerate sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they'll multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. God's Rosh Hashanah, God's tabernacles, and God's atonement aren't enough. I need a new something. Jesus says, look, I want to correct the situation. You see, here's the deal. Jesus is being merciful to these Pharisees and these, law, and these lawyers. He's trying to help them see the wickedness of their hearts so they'll repent. And there were some that did repent. We know that later. That there were some of the Pharisees in the ruling class that did believe in Jesus and, and trusted him after his resurrection. And he's trying to get them to see that he loves them. You see, the common reaction when someone specifically corrects us, because here Jesus specifically corrects them on some issues in their life. He just doesn't say you guys are evil and then walk away. He says, no, here's how specifically you're evil you need to repent of. He addresses specifically their sin. And instead of receiving the correction, they counterattack. And now they're looking for the best counterattack to get rid of the correction they were offered. Can I tell you, that's normal in our culture. We don't like to be corrected. We want to fight it. Look at what Proverbs says about those who refuse correction. They hate those who correct them. Proverbs 9, 8, Proverbs 15, 12. They do not listen to the one correcting. Proverbs 13, 1. They despise their own soul. Eventually they come to a place where they're so bitter they despise themselves. And then it says they're stupid and they're foolish. 
See, Jesus isn't being mean here. Jesus is trying to correct them so they know that there's a dad, a father who loves them, and they don't want to hear it. He goes on and it says, In these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together, so they were trampling on one another. I mean, this is like a rock concert. It's crazy. And then it says, He began to say to his disciples first, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. He's looking and he's saying, look, it's real easy to get tied in with the Pharisees. It's real easy to let the things of this world, the little leaven, leaven is yeast, and a little bit of yeast that makes the big dough grow. He says, be careful that you don't get tied in it's so subtle when you begin to go down that road he said because if I love you and if God loves you he's going to uncover things as you read his word he's going to show you places in your heart and in your life that need to be changed and how are you going to respond to it are you going to respond like the Pharisees and allow the the wickedness to grow or are you going to respond humbly and say I don't want sin to grow in my life I, I confess to you I I surrender. I believe that you can give me much more than I could ever want, think, or imagine. And I said to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. That would have been strange. (laughs) That's kind of all there is, right? (laughs) Don't fear those who can kill the body. Well, that's all I got. (laughs) If they kill it, I don't have anything. I don't have my house. I don't have my friends. I don't have a wife. I'm dead. (laughs) Oh, no. And then he says, look at this, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. See, Jesus believed in hell. There's a generation of people that say we don't need to believe in hell anymore. It's not real. It doesn't exist. God's not mean like that anymore. Listen, hell isn't mean. Hell is just justice. It's just just. It's what we truly deserve. And when we realize we deserve it and then we humble ourselves before him and approach him like the Father's prayer or Jesus' prayer, it shows that our heart has changed. And look at what he says. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. At that moment, you'd be like, oh my goodness, God's scary. And then he says, I love this. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. God loves you, which is why I'm here warning you. But that's that's what he says. I'm here warning you because I love you. You are so valuable to God that I left heaven to put myself in an early body, earthly body and I'm headed towards the cross to, be a, to give atonement. You realize how valuable you are? That's why I'm standing before you is because you're so valuable to me. You're worth more than sparrows. He goes on and he says, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Men will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. There's the son of man. If you recognize who I am, if you recognize what I came to do, if you recognize that that the whole 
Bible, all the story, everything written is about me and a relationship with me and me being your Rosh Hashanah, me being your tabernacles, me being the atonement for the sins you deserve. If you recognize that, then I'm going to stand before my father and say they're forgiven, they're mine, they've surrendered their life to me, I've walked with them, they've struggled with me. But whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. In other words, you can speak a word against the Son of Man. You can doubt Jesus. You might say something to Jesus, and then it says, look at this, but the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. People talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit all the time. Have I done it? Listen, if you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you haven't committed it. Let me repeat that. If you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't committed it. Because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to say, I don't want God to draw me anymore. I don't want to be near him. I don't want to be near his people. I don't want God to have anything to do with me. I'm going to, I'm going to create a false God that I will believe in, and I'm going to gather the people around me to worship my false God. If you're here and you're trying to seek God, then you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit draws us to God. God's, Jesus said, I want to give you my Spirit. And when you say, I don't want it, I don't want to have anything to do with your plan, I don't want you to change me, I don't believe your word is true, when you do that, that's when it gets scary. And then he says, whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, look at this, don't worry about how you should defend yourself for what you should say. Are you serious? When I'm in front of the rulers, like if I'm in front of the president, I'm going to be concerned about what I tweet, what I say. No, don't worry about it. Look at this. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. In other words, you don't think God wants to give you the words to speak to people? So many people talk about evangelism and they're like, I just don't know what to say to people. What? You can talk about everything on Facebook, the, the good things that have happened in your life, and you can't just talk about God and be like, Jesus is awesome. I just wanted to let you know that I think that. That's evangelism. That's the first start. And you need to make a decision about whether Jesus is awesome or not, if he really is who he says he is. I, I just wanted you to know that. I love you. That's evangelism. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. It's just costly, which is why we don't do it. Because it's costly. We know that when we say that, there's no turning back, that we're either going to get Pharisees who want to kill us or people who actually want to change. And most of the time, Jesus says, you're going to get people who want to kill you. Because the harvest is plentiful, yes, but wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to life, Jesus said. And, and listen, the Holy Spirit wants to give you the love of God, the peace of God, the joy of God. He wants to bring into your life all the emotions we long for, but we have to surrender to him. This week, as I wrap up, most of you have probably seen this. If you haven't, then you get to see it now. The greatest display of what it looks like and what Jesus is trying to teach happened this last week. The greatest display of a God who is holy and just and carries down righteousness and justice, and yet in that extends his grace and forgiveness and love, and doesn't say you get out of the consequences, but says, I will be with you through the consequences. It was on full display this week, and racial too, the Gentiles and the Jews. The racial picture of this was beautiful. Just watch. 
That girl was convicted of 10 years, for 10 years in prison. Because after a long shift as a police officer, she came home distracted, texting her partner about having sex and all other kinds of illicit things. She was distracted on what floor she was on, and she went into the wrong apartment, thinking it was her apartment, opened the door, and a large black man named Botham, who was a worship pastor, was standing there. And when he stood up and confronted her, she pulled her gun and shot him one time, hit him in the heart, and killed him. And in that moment, she realized, oh my gosh, this isn't my apartment. The young man at the first of the video was Botham's brother. And this judge handed her, turned to her, to a Bible verse, handed her her Bible that she takes to chambers and to the bench every day, and that was what you saw her doing, handing this young woman her Bible and praying with her on national television. This woman didn't get out of serving because, well, if I just accept Jesus, I don't have to serve 10 years, right? No. There's justice. But in the midst of the justice, we can lay down our lives. We can give hope of a just God and the justice we deserve. That God wants to give us so much more than just a great life. She's going to have a terrible life probably the next 10 years as we would define living in our culture. But she can have the greatest 10 years ever if she surrenders to Christ and walks with him. And she can be a witness to those in the prison and she could tell this story of this brother and this judge who extended her love and didn't just give her a pass and say, I love you, go do what you want, but literally said, no, we have to cast down the judgment. The only other thing that would make this better, and I've used this example before, and there's no room for this in our justice system, but in God's justice system, this is what happens, is if that judge took off her robe, placed it on Mrs. Geiger, Miss Geiger, and said, I'll spend the next 10 years in prison for you. Now you go behind the bench, and the next person that comes in here, whatever their sentence is, you take theirs. See, that's the picture of the gospel. It's radical. It's different. And that's communion. That's how much God wants to give to us. He doesn't excuse the sin. He doesn't say it doesn't cost you. There's not consequences. There are. But in the midst of those consequences, I offer you my forgiveness. I offer you my love. I say there's a father you need to know in heaven. And his name is holy. His kingdom is coming, and you need to be ready for that. And I believe he can provide for you just like he provides for me. And I offer you forgiveness, and I hope you can extend forgiveness to others that offend you, knowing that it's all about him. And I pray that you won't be tempted for the next 10 years in prison, that you'll walk with God. You see, that's the picture that Jesus is trying to get these people to see of himself. And when things like this happen, we don't know what to do with it. Most of the news media outlets cut out the part where he said you need to accept Jesus. They cut that out. They, they, light, they, they edit it to the point where he said, I don't hold this against you. Can I hug you? But they didn't 
tell them the power that lived in him that let him do that. Jesus said the power that just let that young man and that judge have that kind of response is the power of the Holy Spirit in them that comes through the communion with God that Jesus offers. That he wants to give us Rosh Hashanah, a new life. And he wants to live in us. He wants to tabernacle with us. And he wants us to know that as we walk and tabernacle together, that he is always our atonement. Once and for all, forever, died for us and all of our sins, past, present, and future, because he loves us that much. That's the gospel. That's communion. That's our God. That's the message we have to share. Is it a hard message? There are consequences, there's sin, there's there's payment for that, absolutely. And there's a God who gives us a clear picture of what that looks like, just like this is.